Okay, so let's look at number one, this little timeline, and you know, pretty scant timeline, but enough to kind of get us going and moving um, into, into this section here. So I put circa 30, that is AD 30, um, besides the table over there, what does AD mean? So we got, like, if you're, in the, if you're in the academy or in the school now, or reading academic books, you'll find BCE and CE as the, as the way of dating which is just a way of changing the name of Christian history, right? Just taking the names off of Christian dating, the Christian, basically, the dominion of time, uh, and calling it something different. So what, what is, uh, well, what's B.C. and B.C.E.? You guys got that one yet? What? A.D. was Anno Domini. Yeah, right. In the year of our Lord. Sure. So what, the, the, what we're dealing with now, as far as the academy goes, B.C.E. is before the common era, and C.E. is the common era. Well, what makes the common era common? The Christian Church, <laughs> the reign of Christ uh, through His Church. So, and, and of course, Christians looking back at history kind of organized that, and then and then the secularists want to pull Jesus and God out of everything, which includes the dating system, which is far more important than a lot of other things. Uh, how we date, how we understand uh, time and the world we live in. So anyway, A.D. is the Anno Domini or the year of our Lord, uh, Jesus' reign, Jesus' heavenly reign, and so in uh, what we call A.D. 30, they of course would not have called it that. About AD 30, Jesus was crucified, resurrected. Okay, so we have that as the kind of pivot point, the most important, you know, then the ascension of Christ and, and heaven. And then all of this time following is the reign of Christ and the growth of the church. Um, if you read Revelation 20 that way, the thousand years. The, the, revel, the, the, the millennium is this time in which we are living, the reign of Christ, uh, which I think is a faithful way to read that text, by the way. So, AD 30, we have the death and resurrection of Jesus, and less than a generation later, we have A.D. 64, which is when Rome finally distinguishes Christianity from Judaism and points its persecutorial powers on Christianity specifically. So Christianity is specifically outlawed in 64 by Nero. I wrote the, the language, the religio illicita, an, an illegal religion. Okay, it's a superstition and an illegal religion. I didn't put A.D. 70 in there, though I should have, as maybe among the most important you know, features of this period of time is the fall of Jerusalem and the crushing of it by Rome. And when Rome distinguishes Christianity from Judaism, starts persecuting Christianity, right about that time they get, the, the Jews start getting real uppity and making problems, and Rome responds to them over the course of a number of years by crushing Jerusalem, destroying the temple, and, and everything around it that's Jewish as well. Um, so that was AD 70 is the kind of mark in the middle there. Um, when, when we say, or when we use the word pagan, which is something kind of over and over again in these lessons we've talked about, what is, what is paganism in this sense? I mean, it, kind of, it may mean all sorts of things as it comes out of anyone's mouth at any time, but in the sense of this early Christianity and the, and the, kind of the, the, the fights of the church in these early centuries, what do we mean by paganism? What does that word mean? Start answering. Just, even if it's like just a partial answer, just throw it out there. Visitors? Okay, the worship of idols. Uh, that's uh, good enough. Is Darlene had hand coming up? Worship of many gods. Okay. Um, so idols, idols being some kind of physical uh, manifestation of, of, an, of a god. Um, many gods, so the polytheism is definitely built into that. Right. 
Well, in, 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 the, in our case here, it has everything to do with what's physical because... So in this specific case, but not generally. Yeah, so, okay. Um, so we have many gods. We have the kind of spiritual... Re- I think that's what you're getting at, Calvin. The spiritual reality is behind what idol worship is. When Paul says, well, these aren't really gods. You're worshiping their demons. Come on in. And um, so we have demonic powers behind these idols that really are physical and in the ancient mind are the place where, you know, where the divinities would meet with people. Right? People think we're, we're meeting with the divinity, we're going to gain power from this thing, and the physical aspect of it is not to be sneezed at. Uh, and I think, um, yeah, the, the physical reality, and of course the early church, the physical realities of the idols in their houses, where the rites are carried on for those idols and the gods behind them, they're all over the place. Pagan temples are everywhere. Right through the ancient world and through all these the, the Christian experience as well. So when we talk about paganism, we're not just talking about basic idolatry, that's included. We're not even just talking about basic polytheism, that's included. We're talking about the ancient gods that were worshipped before Christianity came around. The ancestral gods, the ones that made Rome great. Rome is a world power. Why? Because of the gods she worships, which are certainly not the Christian god. Okay? So Christianity is up against that. Like, we think of idolatry or, or paganism as, you know, these kind of silly little rubes, uh, but not hardly, right? They're, they're in control of a lot, and Christianity has a lot to deal with, uh, with these ancient religions and rites and stuff that aren't, aren't just, you know, you don't just go on Sunday and do your pagan thing. It's kind of woven through your life. It's woven through society. It's woven through how you eat. It's woven through how you shop. Right? It's, it's, it's through society, and Christianity is up against that. That's what we're, what's we're dealing with. And it's a very small minority. It's not like, you know, we think of the church as popping out full form, ready to go. Hardly. Right? It's this growth process through these centuries to, to deal with these issues. Um, the biggest move forward, beyond just the regular Christian preaching and teaching and living, which has been going on through these centuries, comes with the, the conversion of, of Constantine, who becomes emperor, uh, the consolidation of the entire empire in his hands, one man, uh, we get Theodosius a little bit later here, just the same thing. One man finally has, again, the control of the entire empire. And then after Theodosius, we'll get to the end of this, once, once he dies, it just kind of falls apart. The Roman Empire breaks into two again, and then the Western Empire almost immediately falls. Uh, and that's, that's, what, that's what gets Augustine to write City of God, So as far as connecting those, those dots. Okay, so 303 to 312, we have the great persecutions. These are serious kind of empire-wide persecutions. They make big problems for the church we talked about, where people who give over holy books or, you know, or, or give in to you know, make sacrifices to the genius of the emperor or whatever, these are seen, seen as traitors uh, to the Christian cause. And, uh, and some Christians say they're not Christians at all. Right? So you have this division in the church, particularly in Africa, around that sort of thing. Um, any, any questions on this? Because this is stuff we've talked about before, but I'm trying to get a running start. Uh, any questions on those, you know, up to Constantine, these, these earlier years? Constantine is kind of where we're going to step or stand and start moving from, since that's, that's, the, that's where Christianity becomes something imperial, becomes something of the empire, right? It becomes something Roman and of the, this Roman, like, power structure that's spread around the world. Christianity finally fits into that before it's on the outside of it, and that's a very important feature for us. Any questions kind of on the way up here? Okay, so that last thing I just said is really kind of where we're going as far as the questions. What is it for Christianity for 250 years to be illegal and underground, and then suddenly it's, now it's legal, and then it isn't very many generations later until every other religion is illegal, and Christianity is the only legal one in the Roman Empire. That's an enormous transition, and do you think that impacts the church, and how the church thinks of herself, and how the church operates? Well, you better believe it does, right, enormously. 
That's an enormous change in the Christian church. And that comes first here in 313 with the Edict of Milan, where um, after, after Constantine wins an important battle, kind of grabbing power, at least in part of the empire, he says Christianity is no longer illegal. You're not, you're not hunted and persecuted for, for being a Christian or practicing Christianity. Well, that's enormous. It doesn't make everything else illegal. It doesn't make Christianity preferred. It just makes Christianity an option, a legal option within the Roman Empire under Constantine. So you can see even there, uh, Constantine's in no way, even though he probably liked to be able to move against all the pagans and all the pagan religion and temples and everything else, um, he has no position to do it. He doesn't have the power in the empire, even as the emperor, to do that because it's so thoroughly pagan for so many years and even you know, numerically at the time. Okay, this will get us up to where we were anyway. Um, so 325 then is the um, Constantine calls and convenes the Council of Nicaea. This morning when we come to the table, we'll go to the back of our hymnals and we'll read the Nicene Creed, which comes from this council, uh, and the next council, which we'll see in a minute, the 381, um, the Council of Constantinople picks up that creed and kind of tightens it up, and that, that's the creed we have called the Nicaeo Constantinopolitan Creed. If you like that one, it just rolls right off the tongue. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a work of those two councils together. Both of those councils called by Roman emperors. Okay? Both of these early, these are the first two we call ecumenical church councils, called by Roman emperors. weren't called by the Pope. They weren't called by the bishops. They weren't called by the, um, the patriarch of Constantinople or Alexandria or these kind of important churchmen. They were called by the Roman emperor, a secular power, if we want to think about secular in a modern term, kind of look back. But, right, it's, it's not the Christian church that's calling this council. It's the state that's calling this council because they need the stability of the church in their state. That's how, often how it happens. Okay, so we have Constantine really kind of bringing Christianity up and, 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 and making it something the Roman Empire encompasses and starts funding and things like that as well. And then his descendant, at least in anyway, relation of his, Julian the Apostate, we talked about it like two weeks ago, uh, or maybe three, and he comes back and, and really kind of turns the whole power of the Roman government just the opposite direction. Say, so let's bring back uh, the pagan sacrifices. Let's reopen the temples, these Christians, over the course of these long years of have almost run paganism out, and we want it back. And so you have this kind of short reign of, of Julian going just the other direction, saying we want paganism back and out with Christianity and use the Roman state uh, power to do such thing. He was cut down pretty quickly. The Christians rejoiced and kind of never looked back. Right? The Christians rejoiced, although there's plenty of squabbling and problems to be sure, but there's not something, an emperor stepping up saying, no more Christianity, we're going back to the ancient gods. We're going back to the gods that made, uh, made this empire great, not this new Christian god, um, because that's just going to make the gods mad at us if we stop worshiping them and start worshiping only this Christian god. You can understand the mentality of, of that. Um, any questions for Julian? We're going to get into new territory here right now. Uh, so that's, uh, is, that, is that to be up? Let's see, you got uh, Julian, we're 361, 363. All those years that's his from uh, 30 or thereabouts, that's a lot of two centuries there of uh, pendulum going back and forth and back and forth and back and, back and forth. And even in the Old Testament, there's a lot of, of the uh, Hebrew children back and forth and back and forth. You bet. Uh, is, is that, do we, can we draw a conclusion from that or can we, can we apply that to modern? I mean, what, what, where, what is the constant? Good. That's, that's, that's a really good question. 
Um, because you you look at like say ancient Israel and it's quick the way, the way the way Scripture speaks of it is yeah okay they're they're repentant God blesses them they get hard they rebel against God He punishes them they soften you know this kind of cycle that keeps going it's like they just keep going and going are we like that sure is church history like that I think so I think it is like that I think there there are times where God gives a spirit and His blessing and then that blessing becomes corrupted and and God God disciplines it or punishes it so I think that works the same way uh, one follow up and it's probably a little Constantine didn't do that. He just said, hey, we're going to make it not illegal. So he, he takes the first step of making it not illegal. It's his successors that little by little, especially when we get to Theodosius, the next guy, really turn against the pagans. As far as, as far as Constantine's own spirituality, that's a great question. A lot of scholars kind of are all over on him because he's a large-type ruler, right? Uh, and one thing, is, and it's not uncommon in the time, Amy has just been reading about this too, that like defer baptism. Right? If we're thinking baptism washes away sins when I, when I receive it, then why not have it wash away more sins than less, and why have my sins washed away and then walk into future sins? Right? So it has this kind of like temporal sense to it, and so oftentimes people would put, it, put baptism off until much later in life, thinking that that would be the key to washing away more sins than less. Right? Um, and it seems like Constantine's kind of in that same ilk. Um, yeah, so he's, he, Constantine's a hard and interesting figure. I think he's very worth studying um, for any number of reasons. And uh, anyway, good questions. Other other thoughts or questions? Okay, so let's look here quickly then at the reign of Emperor Theodosius. He's called Theodosius the Great, or Theodosius the First. Uh, and his reign is 379 to 395, so a little more than 15 years. Um, and he, he does something that Constantine did, that Augustus did, which is unify the empire. Now, we think of the Roman Empire as just, just like monolithic, you know, thing that just kind of exists hardly. It's, it's constantly torn with civil wars, constantly torn with civil wars. It's, uh, you know, there are kind of brief periods of time where it's like, oh, we're not at war with ourselves. And, you know, one historian I was reading said, you know, one thing about Roman armies is when you put them on the battlefield against each other, they just go berserk and tear each other to pieces. There's, there's no, like, it's, you know, Romans fighting Romans is a terrible thing, and there's plenty of it through Roman history. Like, yeah, we think of it as a staid, you know, situation, the stable, you know, political situation, and it's just not. Most of the time it's not. Sometimes it is, most of the time it's not. But when it comes into the hands of a guy like Augustus, who knows how to kill his enemies and do his thing, it gets solidified. And the same thing goes with Constantine. And the same thing goes with Theodosius. So there are these men of really terrific skills for organization and vision uh, and control of power and things like that, where they're able to pull the empire together again in the hands of one emperor. It's too easy for it to split up, especially because Constantinople is really, uh, even though it's the second capital, and Rome is, is a, almost a defunct capital uh, for, the, for most of the fourth century anyway, that Rome's kind of backwater. The emperors either rule from Milan or from the field where they're doing battle, uh, or in the east in Constantinople, in that great Christian capital uh, that, that just 
yeah, it's the glory of which outshines Rome and every other Christian or every other city that's not Christian. Okay, so um, Theodosius is, becomes emperor, consolidates his power, and he is a Nicene Christian. Okay, what does that mean, a Nicene Christian? Sure. So the, the Nicene means he's drawing his doctrine from the Nicene Council, which is this uh, homoousius, God, the, the, the Son and the Father are the same substance, the same essence, the same being. Right? There's a dif- difference in person, how that's defined, but they're the same in essence, the same in being. That is the Nicene doctrine, as opposed to uh, what we've been talking about, the Arians. And, and you, like, I guess we, you know, again, we think of them as like, oh, this is, there was a heresy back there that they said the weird stuff about Jesus. That he's not the same substance or essence as the Father, but a similar one. And he's actually created being and other things like that, too. But this is a heresy that not only threatened to, but almost looked like it was going to a number of times, take over Christianity. Right? So it's a very powerful heresy in the early church. And the, first, the Nicene Council of 325 came out against it, to be sure, decisively against it, but it didn't stop it. It, it kept growing through the 4th century, and they have to call another council in 381, that's what Theodosius does, uh, to, again, attack uh, Arianism and, and promote the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, which is the Council of Constantinople, the place where that kind of terminology is first used uh, as far as the conciliar language, right? We, have, we believe in the Trinitas, the, the three persons in one being, right? the kind of classic formulation of Trinitarian uh, orthodoxy. So Theodosius is into that. He's into Trinitarian orthodoxy, which we praise the Lord for, because so are we. But remember that we are, by the grace of God, because he was. Think about that. We are Trinitarian, and understand the scripture as Trinitarian Christians, which I think is faithful to the scripture. I don't think Arianism is, and I don't think Tritheism is, and I don't think Modalism is, and all these other heresies that are wrapped around Trinity. I think Nicaea and Constantinople kept the biblical line. They brought all the parts together and said, this is a faithful articulation of what we talk about God as one and three. This is what we mean. But there are a lot of other options out there. There are a lot of other options within the Christian kind of community that aren't clearly defined. We can look back and say centuries later, oh, here are the dividing lines. But when you're in the middle of the battle, it's harder to do that. Right? It's hard to figure that kind of stuff out. Um, but anyway, Theodosius comes in heavily on the side of Nicene Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, against Arianism, against Tritheism, against Modalism, against all these different heresies um, around Trinitarianism. And calls that second, what's now called the Second Ecumenical Council. What's ecumenical mean? It means church, right? So the whole church. The, it means kind of Catholic. Right? The, the universal church, the uh, the second ecumenical council means the second council that the whole church looks back to and says, good, we believe this. And Nicaea is the first, Constantinople is the second, and then there are two more in 431 451 that are seen as the kind of the first four ecumenical councils that all Christianity really harkens back to, and then the councils go from there and the groups start peeling off saying, no, we don't, we don't believe that, and we're not there yet. So these first four are very important. These first two are preeminently important with regard to Trinity. Okay. So he calls the Second Ecumenical Council and does a bunch of legislation, that's the last thing here, from the Roman power, not in the church, but in the Roman state, against paganism. Shutting down pagan worship, appropriating pagan shrines or temples, converting them to Christian shrines and temples, or destroying them or repurposing them. The same kind of things you see going all through history. 
right? When one culture takes over another culture, they take their religious institutions or lands and reappropriate them to their own use. That's kind of what happens typically. Uh, it happened in the Reformation where you have the reformers taking over lands and they got all these, like, for instance, monastic lands, you know, uh, 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 trying to think of the right word, monasteries, and so on. Well, Protestants really didn't do monasteries, but they took them over <laughs> anyway and took the land and took the property and took the money and said, okay, this is ours. And oftentimes just the crown did it, right? particularly in England. The crown's like, that'll be our stuff, thank you. The, the, the government, the state government has a tendency to do that. So we have a lot of anti-pagan legislation that by the, by the time of 391, paganism is outlawed in the, in the Roman Empire. It's illegal now to be a pagan. And it gets, it gets, it gets harder and harder through the next like, century and a half. And, but that doesn't mean paganism goes away. The, the city of Rome, for example, is deeply pagan, deeply pagan. And the bishop that lives across the river over there in what becomes known as Vatican, um, who cares what he says? The, the Roman aristocrats that have lived there and passed on their money and, and prestige for all the generations and worshipped the ancestral gods, they don't care what that guy says on the other side of the river. They're going to carry on. So paganism in various places carries on even you know, for centuries into the Christian era. Um, but this is a major issue then in, within the Roman system to say to, uh, the full reversal, to, where Christianity was outlawed and the pagan religions were legal to Christianity is the only legal religion and all the pagans are outlawed. So you can see the kind of flip-flop here over the course of, well, 300 and 330 years, right? So from 64, where Christianity is outlawed, to uh, 391, we have this transition, right? So we look back at it historically and think, oh, that happened fast, right? It's all there. It's, oh, yeah, that's the early church, right? That happened like this. But it didn't happen like that. Right? It took many generations of faithful Christian living, faithful Christian preaching, faithful Christian scholarship, people that have the skills to go and do that work, to do that work, and faithful Christian leadership as well, people in power trying to be faithful. I'll give one story about Theodosius. It's Ambrose, who's not in here. Anyway, he, um, he did, so for classical conversations, we do faces of history, so they get dressed up like a character, and they, they kind of speak first person like they're this character. They would use the name, and everyone has to kind of guess who they are. It's a fun way to get them, you know, kind of acting a little bit and, and recreating history. Well, he did Ambrose. St. Ambrose of Milan, who's at this time, he's contemporary uh, at this time, and Theodosius, the emperor, the Christian emperor, Theodosius, uh, responded to a riot in Thessalonica, like, I mean, that's a biblical city, right, isn't there first and second Thessalonians? Anyway, so he responded to a, uh, a riot in Thessalonica by massacring the citizens, 7,000 plus, like, massacred, basically the city massacred, uh, you know, because there was a riot and one of his officials was murdered. And so, well, we got to make a we got to make an example out of these folks, don't we? And uh, and Ambrose actually went and counseled with him right away. Said, hey, 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 slow down, don't get so hot around the collar. And then Ambrose left, and he got hot around the collar and massacred the city. And um, and then you know, because Ambrose is the bishop of Milan, which is where the seat of power is for the Roman Empire in the West. So in walk in the door walks Theodosius to come worship, and Ambrose stops at the door and says, "You're not coming in. Someone of, of unrepentant sin like you is not welcome here." And Theodosius humbled himself before the whole church, repenting of that. Kind of an amazing situation uh, where it shows you the power of Ambrose in the West. It's, an, it's amazing. He's an amazingly powerful bishop, um, and partially because he's in the seat of power. He's, he's, he's ministering and doing his work right where all the stuff's going on in Milan. Um, so anyway, all that is a story for Theodosius, who clearly was a violent man, 
but also recognized he was a violent man as an emperor and even publicly repented of it. So kind of an amazing story. Can you imagine the president laying on the floor in repentance? No. Never. Yeah. Augustine's mom? Huh? Augustine's mom? Augustine's mom. And Augustine, went, he liked to, he wasn't a Christian, but he liked to hear Ambrose speak because Am, uh, Augustine was a rhetorician, and through it, he was converted in. Yeah. Yeah, he says that. So in Confessions, he kind of runs that down very nicely where he says something along the lines of he, he wants to go listen to Ambrose preach because he's a renowned preacher. And, well, Augustine teaches speech, and so, which, is, which is really the most important thing in Roman society, to know how to speak, and not just to kind of get up and be comfortable, but to know how to speak in you know, a far more rigid way than we have nowadays. And so he wants to hear this guy, and he says, but I couldn't stop the content from coming into my soul. I just wanted to hear the words. I just wanted to hear how he was doing what he was doing. Right? I just wanted to see the craft, but when he's in there receiving that craft of preaching, he's receiving the message of the gospel as well, and he can't stop it. That's kind of how he, how he talks about it. Anyway, so Ambrose is a very important person in the early church. Um, here are a handful of, of reasons why. There are more than that, too. And they tie in with paganism. So that was a long way of getting through the first section here. Uh, any, any questions while we're here on the timeline? Yeah. Always. Always. You know, the, it struck me as when you mentioned about him, there was a mob riot because one official got killed. It made me think of uh, a, a, very, a few nefarious characters that uh, got killed in Wisconsin, wherever it was. <laughs> And then the riots are still going on. Yeah, right. Yeah, but sure. it hasn't been stopped, necessarily. Yeah, and we're, we're thankful and that it wasn't a massacre to stop them, too. Yeah. But it's kind of its own massacre, right? I don't know. Not, maybe not 7,000 people. But, uh, okay, yeah. So you mentioned that the church and the emperor or empire was um, taking over these pagan temples and then repurposing them for Christian worship. Sure. Do you think that um, had played a part in... The Roman Church and their um, icons and so forth. So, do I? Is the question do I do I think that the like the kind of uh, the syncretistic kind of grabbing onto at least pagan structures mm-hmm. ties in with pagan idols themselves coming in? Maybe. Yeah, and you know, trying since a repurposing, probably wanting to maybe wanting to maintain some of the pagan worshippers and bring them into. I see. Christian worship, yeah. kind of. In that sense, maybe so. Maybe so. It's some of their idols as saints. Or sure, right. I, I imagine plenty of that goes on through history anyway, right? That seems that kind of syncretistic draw is always kind of there on the evangelistic, which, which is to say, if you're taking over a culture, say, well, Jesus is kind of like what you're talking about over here, right? And and kind of connecting them up. Well, you know, there's a good way to do that, and there are plenty of bad ways to do it. Paul does it. Hey, I, you got a you got an altar over here to the unknown God. I'm going to preach them to you. I'm going to tell you who he is, right? So there's a connection there that Paul makes that's a good one, but you can say, now let's just keep doing the same things we're doing to this unknown God and pretend it's to the living God, right? There's a change in that. And a lot of times pagan temples aren't places to meet. They're not meeting places. They're a place where the idol is, where the physical idol is, where you go and make some sacrifice and get out, right? It's not made to congregate. Where Christian meeting houses are made to congregate. So the major structure, the major... uh, architectural structure that Christians take advantage of is called the Basilica, which is a Roman meeting house. Right? And they say, oh, well, well, we'll meet there. That works. And then they kind of modify it a little bit to look like a cross, and we have basic basilica or, or a church shape 
that runs all the way through the centuries, right? So that's based upon a Roman building. So a repurposing a Roman building. But you're, you're on to something, I think, though, with, you know, trying to connect. Um, and at this point, Christianity is kind of on the rise, and, and paganism, in a lot of ways, is kind of going down. So uh, depends on where people are at, where Christians are at, what they're trying to do with that. All that to say, I don't know. <laughs> Other words, I don't know. Okay, the, quickly then, in the last handful of minutes, the analysis we've kind of already worked through. We've kind of talked a little bit about this, but so the demise of paganism, the fall of the old gods, the old idols, the old rites, right, the way in which these gods were served, um, all the way into, you know, things that have been around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, right? So we get kind of angry. Do you, I mean, do you? Do you get a little angry if people are taking down statues? Like here in the last couple of years, taking down statues, maybe of, of southern leaders and things like that, because they're big racist, racist jerks and all that. Um, but even of like historic, like you know George Washington and so on. And he's, you know, the, 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 there's this kind of re-understanding of history. It's like, oh, these guys are all bad now, and their statues need to go. We don't want them around. Well, nothing new about that. Nothing new about that. Iconoclasm has always been part of, of social change. Um, but anyway, taking down these old idols, the old rites and their holds upon the minds and hearts of the people, right? So we don't think that it's just a silly little thing when people go worship idols. We recognize there's a spiritual bondage involved in that. That's the truth of it. They worship demons. There's demonic power. And Paul says, you can't, you can't partake of that demonic power and of Christ. You can't eat at the table of demons and the table of the Lord, right, in 1 Corinthians 10. So that's, you know, we, we don't think this is just like people making believe it's like, oh, they're cute little make-believe idolaters out there. They just need to know the real God. No, they're trapped and bound into that idolatry. And it, it works its way into their lives and their families, into their church, into society, not church, or whatever they're doing, their gatherings and so on, right? So there's a real spiritual bondage that Christianity is really coming in and opening up and shedding the light on, right, and, and knocking down and pushing over. Uh, so that's an important thing. But on the other hand, so that's the, the, the fall of the idols is one thing, the pagan idols. But on the other hand, there's a rise of Christian idols at the same time. Right, um, and that's the second part of letter B, the allure of power, the rise of the new idols. So from power, privilege, patronage. So when, you, when, when the church goes from being illegal to being you know, legal in, in Rome and then being patronized, right, where there's now the, the, the bishops and the churches that have apostolic connections get, start getting patronized by the, by the empire, getting money, and you know, they can build huge buildings and glorious buildings now instead of being underground and hidden and all that. The privilege, now the bishops are brought into, into seats of power in the Roman Empire. There's a, place, there's a class made for them uh, within the Roman hierarchy and caste system for Christian bishops and leaders. Well, that's important, right? Now we have privilege. Right? Now we're part of, you know, you think of the uh, House of Lords in England, right? It used to be pretty well, I don't know, even or ever, but between secular rulers and church rulers, the bishops were in the House of Lords. They still are. They have a tiny little section. <laughs> if you look at how the House of Lords is laid up, it's like, yeah, they're still there in name, but pretty much in name only. The church doesn't really factor into the House of Lords in, in England, but it has historically. The lords of church and earth come together to, to help govern, right? That's the same idea kind of here. Um, and, you know, the patronage of, of, uh, the, of the massively powerful, massively wealthy Roman Empire and the emperor himself, that changes the way Christianity conceives of itself. Right? And, and, the way, and the particular idols that it has. I'm sure there were idols in the early centuries when Christianity was persecuted and illegal. But those idols became different when it came into its power and privilege in the Roman Empire. As the idols of the pagans fell, these idols of the Christians came up, right? When they're seeking power and privilege and patronage and so on. Yeah. Well, you refer to that 
that, is that is it accurate to say that Christians, or are you talking about alleged Christians? What, what, you're saying that God-fearing, Bible-believing, trust-faithful believers, Christians, have entered into these these false things that you just said, these these bishops that are in graft and every, all that, that corruption of the, so, you want to call it the Roman Catholic Church? So think of it this way, baby. Don't, don't think of it as, um, as the, the things I'm saying as particular individuals, as how the church is tempted, right? So individuals within the church, whether they truly trust in Christ or not, I mean, certainly all of us who do trust in Christ still struggle with idolatry. Every sin is an issue of idolatry at a certain point, right? That's the basis of everything. Um, and so the church then has to struggle with a new situation in which there are temptations toward various idolatries that they didn't have temptations toward before. Right? That, that changes the nature of the Christian church, not necessarily the individuals in it, though it's going to have to land there at some point, right? Um, so there, there is, I'm calling Christian idolatry. I don't mean like, uh, in that I don't mean something like, oh, I'm a, I'm a homosexual Christian, like we hear nowadays. Like, I identify myself as a Christian and a sinner. This particular sin defines who I am. And no, that's not how it works. You don't get to be a homosexual Christian anymore than you get to be a raping Christian. I'm a raping Christian. I just rape my way around the neighborhood and it's cool, I'm a Christian. No, right? No, I'm a, I'm a thief. I'm a stealing Christian. So no, you don't get to do that, right? You, you need to repent of those things because you're a Christian. The same thing applies to this kind of idolatry, kind of historically in the church. These are the, these are the idols they're up against. This is what, you know, and they're different. As things shift, we, we want to fight the battles of a generation or two ago because we kind of understand those. But the, gen, the, the generation's battles now, we don't understand. They're confusing. They're hard. Right? They're hard to figure out. And it's still the case. It's still hard to figure out where we are and, and what we're to be doing, what, what our struggles and idols are. Come. I think that the only reason they're hard is because no one thinks about them. No one gives them the time of day to actually sit there and think about the problems that directly affect you and people around you. Because I think that's the only way to get over it is by sitting there and thinking about it, and then you can see a way to do it if you think about it enough. But if you don't think about it, you're never going to see a way to get around it. Well, that's for sure. Very good last one. If we're lazy as Christians, and we're not thinking, we're not perceptive, we don't know our place in history because we don't know history. If we just arrive on the scene, I know what's going on. No, you don't. No, you don't. But if you're not looking, you're not going to figure out. Right? And, uh, and the truth of the matter is, God gives His church grace to move it through each of these chapters. It's the grace of God that moves His people. Christ said He's going to build His church. He's going to keep His church. Of course we're going to struggle. Of course there's going to be sins and idolatry. Of course there's going to be struggle in this, in, in, in this, in this age, right? And we look forward to the time when that's not a struggle for us as Christians. But we have to be students of our own time. And if we're going to be students of our own time, we have to be students of history and preeminently students of Scripture. And to be a student, you know what that means? It means you study. You work hard with your mind and study. That's what that means. Do you have more? That's my hand back there. Anyway, uh, we're pushing it here, huh? Okay, so temples, shrines, altars are shut down, right? The ancient gods are not being worshipped publicly anymore by law, right? They're outlawed now. But Christianity or Christian idolatry is, um, is on the rise due to access for wor- of worldly goods, property, and prestige, and all that. Christianity from uh, religio illicita to, I put sola, religio illicita, the only one that's legal in the Roman Empire, is a major change, and you have to kind of think about that for a while to figure out what that does to the mentality of the church, how that changes the, no- the nature or the notion the church has of itself, from kind of an embattled, persecuted minority to somehow not this minority and still a minority, 
with lots of power in his hands and lots of prestige and lots of ability to do things he could not do before and what kind of temptations come along with those. And then the last thing, letter D, is battles with heresy also. Right? There's, it's not just the Christians versus the pagans. It's the Christians versus the Christians in that sense. Right? Figuring out internally what is orthodoxy and what is not. Right? What is faithful biblical teaching and what is not. That's a huge battle within the, within the church. Uh, to understand what orthodoxy is, that's why we have these councils and why they're so important. So two questions end with, how are Christian idolatries, that's the ones the Christians struggle with, right? it's easy to point at the pagans and say, yeah, that's idolatry, it's bad out there. But that's not the real problem. The real problem is our hypocrisy, our idolatry as Christians, uh, not just as individual Christians, though that too, but as the church. What does the church deal with? What are the temptations of the church in our age, in our time, right now in the United States of America? Not what were the problems in the 16th century. Those were helpful, but they're not what we're dealing with now. Right? We want to fight the battles back then. And I hear preachers preach all the time about 16th century stuff. I'm like, great, that's, that's helpful, but we're in the 21st century. Is that right? Um, it's 21st century Fox now. Anyway, so we've got to understand our own time. We've got to understand our own struggles as a church. So how are Christian idolatries like the ancient pagan ones? But, I mean, today's a great, great example. Churches across our nation right, is, is putting God aside worship our nation. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah, we should be thankful for our, the freedoms of, that our nation affords us and, and that blessing that God has allowed us to have, but many go beyond that right, and go over the top where it is a form of worship. No question. Of, of our nation. So kind of a nationalism, and that's the case, um, and you see it through and through in the book of Acts and where Paul goes what he says, He's worried about the nationalism of Rome. He goes to Roman cities and preaches Christ and says, "There is, a, you know, anyway, we have a new gospel. Uh, you know, the, the gospel's coming in. It's a counteracting gospel to Rome's gospel, which they have explicitly. There's the good news of Rome, but there's the good news of Jesus Christ, and it stands in opposition at certain points to that good news of Rome. And it's still the case. America has some good news. We go out the world. Are we spreading messages abroad? Yeah, we're putting gay, gay flags up on our embassies." We have messages we're sending, to be sure. Um, but the message Christians had to send is the message of the gospel. And sometimes that runs counter to the message of the, the state in which we find ourselves. Uh, though at the same time, we can be thankful for the state in which we find ourselves without being idolaters. That's a good one because it's, it's really almost on par with what Paul's dealing with and what we're dealing with. Very close. Other, other issues that kind of come through from this ancient idolatry, uh, pagan idolatry that kind of presses into Christian thought and Christian struggles and temptation. So we, we don't typically struggle with bowing down to graven images. That's not a struggle for us in our age. It certainly is a struggle for faithful believers through the ages. Right? That's part of the, you know, the culture there. When we, don't, we, we, um, we, we bow down in different ways. We bow down with our money. Right? We bow down with our time. So Christian, and, you know, we'll just wrap up on this, and you can, you can think about that second question later, but... You know, of all the energy you spend, of all the time you have that you pour into, God calls you to do all kinds of things. Okay, he calls you to be a grandmother, a grandfather. He calls you to be a worker. He calls you to, there's lots of stuff that fills our time. How much of your time, Christian, and how much of your energy is spent studying the Scripture, drawing near to God so that you can be a faithful tool in His hand right now? Right now, in your life. And as parents, how we can pass that and give that to our children. 
so they can come up and be faithful tools in the hand of God in their generation, their time, and train their children to do the same. So there's a call to study the Scripture, and that's hard work. It's a call to study the history of the church, also hard work, but very glorious work and fruitful work. And so let me encourage you in it, just redouble your efforts in Scripture reading, in Scripture not just reading, in Scripture studying, studying the Word of God and seeking the Spirit as we, as we do that, that we can be faithful against the idolatries of our time, even the ones we kind of can't even see. They kind of escape our vision because they're kind of part of the way we think and the part of the fabric of our society that we just don't even recognize and just think it's normal. Uh, so, anyway, this is all to think about idolatry in its general sense and the kind of spiritual realities, which I hope now that we're done with this historical part to kind of get into the theology and doctrine of idolatry and how this thing works, how it works from polytheistic idols and temples to how it works even in Christian hearts and within the church itself. Um, so that's enough for this morning. Let's uh, have a word of prayer.